This is the Moira Pentecostal Church Podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Acts chapter 17. This is the Apostle Paul. He's in Ephesus. Sorry, he's in Athens. And he's at, uh, speaking to the people in Athens. Verse 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he, gives li- since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He is made from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the, upon the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. For in him we live and we move, and we have our being. Too often the Christian life is painted in drab colors, is spoken off in the minor key. To many, it really is a kind of an endurance test or an insurance policy for eternity. But the fact of it is, living for Christ should be the most fulfilling, joyous, rewarding thing in life. There is no better life than to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you find him and find this life, then you do not ever want to go back to what it had been before. Some do, which I can't understand, but you never want to do that because this is without question the best life that you're ever going to have in time and certainly that you're ever going to have in eternity, for sure. So let me give you some reasons, and we'll be brief tonight. Let me give you some reasons why it's great to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, it gives us a purpose for living. You have to have a purpose for life. There needs to be a reason for your existence. Why we are, who we are, where we are in life is so important for us to know. The statistics in Northern Ireland for suicides is tragic. It is unbelievably high. And to think that a 15-year-old, a 16, a 17-year-old young man or young woman who's just starting out in life feels that life is finished for them, haven't even really started, but they're in the position where in their mind they feel, I do not want to live one more day on this earth. I mean, that is just tragic, isn't it? And it's not just young people. There's older people too. And for whatever reason, it gets so low in spirit and mind 
and even in body, that they just do not want to go on living. They seem to have no purpose whatsoever for their lives. That's the way they feel, and they tragically end their life short. We see in it reflected a lot in music and, and kind of art, whatever genre it may be. Sometimes you see a lot of this, this misery uh, and, and no reason and purpose for life. And life is a dead end. Uh, you see it with the new atheists who very boldly tell us that there is no purpose to life. When we try to say there is a purpose. God has given us purpose. Say there is no purpose. You live, and if you have a good life, fine. If you have a bad life, tough. But at the end of it, you die, and that's it. There is no purpose to it. None whatsoever. And what a negative, dark, miserable future that would be. How, why would you want to live knowing that there's no purpose to your life? You know, that the end of it, you're just like a, like a wasp or a, or a moth or a butterfly, and you're gone, and that's it. It's ridiculous. There's a purpose to our lives. You see it reflected in the world of success. Uh, whether that success comes through celebrity status or whether it comes through being filthy rich or whether it comes through being a high-class sports person or whatever, that very often you hear them say at the end of it when they have achieved all of their goals and they have all of their money and they have all of their fame and at the end of it they say, is that it? Is that it? Is there nothing more? I have everything. And I'm looking, well, is that it? Is there nothing else than this? Well, thankfully there is. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. Just the way that the planets go around their sun. And so... Our son, the son of God, our lives revolve around him every day. And we want to keep in that orbit of being close to him and not get out of that orbit, but to stay close to the son of righteousness. In Revelation 4 and 11, it says, we were created for God's pleasure. Now, there's no question that God wants us to have pleasure. He made us, we're, we're wired that way that we like pleasure. We like things that give us pleasure, whether that's a good meal, whether that's a beautiful scene, or whether that's some kind of thing that we do that we, it, it, it's, it's lovely, we enjoy it. Pleasure. God made us to enjoy pleasure. But the true pleasure that he wants us to enjoy is giving him pleasure. If we give him pleasure then we'll find our pleasure in him. We are created for God's pleasure. So God made us to give him pleasure. And in finding what gives him pleasure, if we live our lives to give him pleasure, then we'll get pleasure out of that. We'll have a better life. We'll have a more fulfilling life, a more joyful life, a blessed life. We were created for God's pleasure. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Huh. Eye has not seen nor ear heard. What has been stored up for us that one day, one day whenever we take flight from this earthly life, 
and we get into the glory, what unending pleasure will be there for us? <laughs> It'll take all of eternity for God to unfold his pleasures. We can't even begin to even to imagine the pleasures that God has got in store for us. You know, when you go through life, there are times, there's moments of pleasure, isn't there, that you enjoy? But there's a lot of down times, there's a lot of difficult seasons, there's moments when you're just feeling, Ugh. you know, just life, isn't it? So it's hard for us to imagine that there's going to be a time when we'll never ever feel that again, that every single day of our lives and eternity will be filled with pleasure and joy and a feeling of fulfillment and happiness and peace. But that's what's in store. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So when you find Christ, you find a purpose for your life, a reason to live. And it's going to take the rest of this life and time to outwork that. And then you'll have all eternity to enjoy the blessings of God. Amen. Then there is potential for living. There is no telling what God can do and will do with the life that is fully committed to him. In him we live and we move and we have our being. William Carey is a young man, had a desire to go on the mission field, but nobody was listening. Nobody was listening, but it was a passion in his heart. But he had to make a living until that happened, so he became a cobbler. These young people wouldn't know what a cobbler was, a shoe repair. You wouldn't even know what a shoe repair is, because we just dump our shoes when they're done, don't we, for the most part. But that's what he did. And he was a clever young man. When he was only about 15, he taught himself Latin. And by the time he was mending shoes, he still had this passion to go on the mission field, but nobody was listening. Nobody was encouraging him, but it was in his heart. And he taught himself, as he was making shoes, he taught himself Hebrew and Greek and French and Dutch. <laughs> He's an incredible fellow. And eventually, he did go on the mission field, and eventually he became known as the father of modern missions. And to this day, his work is still going on all over the world. What potential was in that young man as he was standing there putting tacks in the soles of somebody's shoes? Nobody saw it. But God had him. God had his hand in his life. Dale Moody grew up on a farm. He was a farm boy. Time he got to 17, he had enough of farming, he didn't want any more of it. So he went to Boston, to the big city. He had an uncle there, and he tried to get jobs, nobody would employ him, so he, he begged his uncle for a job, and he got a, a job in his uncle's shoe shop. His uncle was a shoe retailer. But his uncle was smart. His uncle says, well, if you're going to work for me, you're going to have to go to the church down the street. That was to keep him out of mischief. And so he started to go to a congregational church down the street. And his Sunday school teacher, a man called George Kimball, took a tremendous burden for this young man. And he went one day, and he walked past the shoe shop, and he walked past it two or three times. He wanted to pluck up the courage to go into the shoe shop and confront this young man about his soul. And eventually he did, and the young man was in a back room. And he went right in there, and he confronted him about his soul, about eternity. And young Dwight Lyman Moody gave his heart to Christ. And little did that Sunday school teacher know 
that he would become the most famous preacher in America of his era. It's reckoned he preached to 100 million people. And that was before TV and before satellite and all that stuff. 100 million people. I like to encourage Sunday school teachers because what they do is generally unseen and generally unheralded. But I'm thinking over the years, think of Evelyn over there and Ethna who's not here today and think of Jillian and now there's others like Lois and Ruth and different helpers, one's doing different, me, Karen, Turkington. Uh, you know, whenever they were, years ago, when they were downstairs and we were up here on Sunday morning and they had that little class, maybe in the kitchen, you know, teaching those little ones, just the basics. Little did they know that they would grow up and some of them would become tremendous young men and women of God who grace this platform every week. Who goes to Africa? Who goes to the Philippines? I think of one of them, he's a pastor today. Joe's young son, Neil. Some of them are nurses. Some went on to college and university and got degrees. But whenever there were five and six and four and seven and nine down the stairs and you had a wee holy huddle there and you were teaching them and years ago you had the felt things and all the rest of that stuff or high tech these days, but, but little did they know that that little batch there, that God had got a plan for them. Now some of them didn't fulfill that, but many did. So what about the ones that's in Sunday school right now? What are they going to be like in 20 years' time? Where are they going to be? Who will they influence and impact in their lives? Will they be pastors and missionaries and worship leaders and nurses and doctors and whatever? What, what, what will they be? And you Sunday school teachers, it's a privilege to do it. But sometimes it's unseen and we forget it because it's out of sight. But it's not out of God's sight. And God sees it. And God will reward that. I, I get the feeling when you stand before the Lord, you'll get rewards that nobody else will get because you took care of his little lambs. When people didn't want to sacrifice the time and the effort, because it's not just that hour in Sunday school, it's during the week and you've got to get the messages right, and you've got to get the stories right, and you've got to do this and do that. And then you come in and then you sacrifice this service. But God sees that all the potential. Gypsy Smith was born in a tent in Epping Forest. He was illiterate. His father served time in jail. But Gypsy Smith got wonderfully saved. Taught himself to read and write. He was a great singer. And then his family got saved and became known as the Singing Gypsies. And William Booth of the Salvation Army realized there's something in this young man's life. And he called him into the army, Salvation Army, and gave him a position. And Gypsy Smith went on to preach all over the world to royalty, to presidents. <laughs> Great soul, but for 70 years he preached the gospel all over the world. When that little baby was born in that tent, Nobody knew, but God knew. God had a plan for him. Such potential, isn't there? 
I know it's an old cliche, but somebody says anybody can count the number of seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. And it's very true, isn't it? And sometimes we, we just count the number of seeds in an apple. You know, we, we look at some kids and we think that God sees the number of apples in that seed. Isn't it a blessing tonight to see young Chris knows drums tonight? Some of you maybe didn't even know he was on the drums tonight. Eh? Did you know he had that talent? I knew he had that talent. But most of you didn't know. But there he is. Wonderful. Praise God. Potential of a prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. Maybe that's why we don't pray as much as we should, because maybe we don't think our prayers are availing much. But they do. And they should. Are you righteous before God? He's made you righteous. Then your prayers can avail much. Elijah was a man of like passions. Yet he prayed, and it didn't rain for three years. <laughs> hmm. I've never prayed one of those prayers yet. They would say that's global warming if you prayed that prayer, wouldn't they? That's what they'd blame it on. Well, they maybe blame it on Brexit, I don't know. Blame everything on Brexit. Well, or everything gets blamed on Brexit. Maybe a gift, or an idea, or a talent. Fifteen-year-old boy was desperately concerned about his soul. Even though he was brought up to know about God, but he came to that place at 15 where he felt, I need Christ, I need to get saved. And he tried many churches. Until one Sunday morning, he set out to try another church. But he couldn't get to the church he wanted to try because it was snowing badly. So he ducked in to a little primitive Methodist church in Artillery Street in Colchester. And it was a cold January morning. And the snow was so bad that hardly anybody got, in fact, the minister couldn't even get. There was like half a dozen people there. And he was the only visitor. And he saw a little huddle going on. It was the elders. What are we going to do? Do we keep to the whole church or what do we do? Do we go home? But they let the boiler. And George Elgin, who was an elder, who wasn't a preacher at all, thought, I have to do something. And here's, here's this young man's testimony. Here's what he said. He said, I was miserable. I could do scarcely anything. My heart was broken to pieces. Six months did I pray, prayed agonizingly with all my heart, and never had an answer. I resolved that in the town where I lived, I would visit every place of worship in order to find the way of salvation. I felt I was willing to do anything if God would only forgive me. I set off determined to visit all the chapels, and although I deeply venerate the men who occupy those pulpits now, as I did so then, I am bound to say that I never heard them once fully preach the gospel. At last, one snowy day, I found a rather obscure street and turned down a court, and there was a little chapel. 
I wanted to go somewhere, but I did not know the street. It was the primitive Methodist chapel. I'd heard of this people from many, and how they sang so loud that they made people's head ache. But that did not matter. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they made my headache ever so much, I did not care. So sitting down, the service went on, but no minister came. At last, a very thin-looking man came into the pulpit. He opened the Bible, and he read these words, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. That was his text. And setting his eyes upon me, as if he knew me by all my heart, he said, Young man, you are in trouble. Well, I was, sure enough. Says he, you will never get out of it unless you look to Christ. Then lifting his eyes, he cried, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Look, look, look. And I saw at once the way of salvation. Oh, how I did leap for joy at that moment. I know not what else he said. I was so possessed with that one thought. I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. And in heaven I will look on still in my joy unspeakable. Young Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who became the greatest preacher that Britain ever produced. <laughs> he was only 15 that day when he got saved. The time he was 19, he preached his first sermon, 16, by the way. Somebody saw a bit of potential in him and tricked him. Said, I want you to go with such and such a person in the next village. I want you to go there. There's going to be an open air. So young Spurgeon thought, as he went along, he said to the man, he says, I'll pray for you as you preach. The man says, I'm not a preacher. I never preached my life. I'm not preaching. You're preaching. I was told you're the preacher. I was the first in you. I thought, I'm tricked. They've got me. And so he got a scripture, and he preached. People got saved. And he realized, God's called me to this. The time he was 19, the biggest evangelical church in London called him to be their minister. It's a massive church. And he went there. After praying, he felt God leading, and he went there. But when he got there at his first service that morning, it was just a handful of people. The church had just so dissipated, as all churches in London were doing at that time. All evangelical churches were on the way down. And that one was no exception. But he preached that morning. And then he was preaching that night, but that night... The people who came that morning, they came and they brought their friends. The time he finished that night, they said, they put him on probation, will you be our minister? They said, I would. And in only eight years, that church went from a handful of people to 5,000 in eight years. 5,000. That was a big building and it couldn't hold it. They had to get another building. In fact, when he built... In 10 years, when they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, it was as called then, it seated, it seated 5,000 plus 1,000 standing, 6,000 people. And for the next 31 years, he filled at every service. In fact, every three months, he told his people, don't come this Sunday because I want the visitors to get in. And they still filled it, and people still standing outside. 
and he was only 27 years of age. See, that Sunday school teacher didn't know, did he? He didn't know what he had in his hands when he led that young man to Christ. He didn't know. He didn't know that D.L. Moody would become the greatest preacher in America. George Eglin didn't know that he would be leading the greatest preacher in Britain to Christ that day in that primitive Methodist. So you see, there's potential, isn't there? When you give your life to Christ, you just never know what can happen to your life because you surrender. There's power for living. Acts 1 and 8, and you shall receive power, dynamis, after the Holy Spirit is come upon you. We cannot live this Christian life successfully without the Holy Spirit. Can't, can't do it. Can't do it. We can go through the motions. We can say all the right things, but we can't actually live it truly without the Holy Spirit. His dynamis, his energizing power helps us to live this life for Christ. 2 Timothy 1 and 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Ephesians 6 and 10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That's where our strength comes from. Ephesians 1.19, the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. There's more than we have. There's more that's available that's there for us. 1 John 5 and 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our faith and our trust in Christ causes the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live as true believers and to give us what Christ has for us. 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.57, but thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there are times in life when things are difficult. Yes, there are hurdles to cross. Yes, there are valleys to go through. Yes, there are things that happen to us that we haven't planned, that we didn't look for. But it happens. And sometimes it rocks us. And sometimes it sets us back a little bit until we say, now wait a minute. Hold on a wee minute here. God has given me power to overcome this. God has given me the strength to have victory in spite of this. And once you begin to realize that, then the power of God helps you overcome those things. I look across the congregation, I see story after story after story of stuff that you went through that at the time you wonder, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to manage? What am I going to do? But you're here tonight and you got through it by the power of God and by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit and you got the victory yes you had to fight and battle but you overcame in the end thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph 
in Christ. So there's a power for us as believers to live this Christian life. Then there's provision for living. Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need. It doesn't specify what the need is because our needs are many and varied. Because sometimes when we read that scripture, the only thing we think about is financial need. But that may not be an issue for you. You may say, well, I'm, I'm doing okay. It's no big deal. It may be an issue for you. Maybe it is a big deal. But not for everybody. Maybe health's an issue with you. Maybe a family situation is an issue with you. There's all kinds of issues in life. All kinds of needs that arise. But my God, Paul said, shall supply all your need. And yes, in the context, it was about material need. Because they were the ones who were supplying him. And because they were supplying him, God said, Paul says, God will supply you. You bless me, God's going to bless you. But what is our need specifically in our life at this particular time? God is able to supply that need for you. 1 Corinthians 9 and 7. Who goes to warfare at any time at his own charges? If you join the army. When you join the army, you're given weapons. You're given fatigues. You're given boots. You're given bags. You're given a bed. You're given housing. You're given everything. The government pays for it all. Spiritually speaking, when you join God's army, then he supplies all your spiritual needs, whatever your spiritual needs may be. It's supplied for you. God has got a storehouse. He's even got armor for us to wear. Many years ago, I used to be in the, the UDR, the Ulster Defense Regiment. That may surprise some of you, but it was. But here was this crazy thing about it in those days. I lived in Ballyclare, East Antrim, and we had to draw arms from Antrim Town. And we had to go in an army lorry from Ballyclare all the way to Antrim to get our arms. So there was maybe a dozen of us in the back of this lorry with not a gun between us. <laughs> we were sitting ducks, we were ducks in a barrel. I mean, that just wouldn't happen today. <laughs> but when we got there, they supplied them for us. <laughs> but you had to get there to get it first. <laughs> you didn't know whether you were going to get there or not, but you took your chance. That's the way that it was in those days. But God has got spiritual armory for us to wear. We're in his army at his charge and everything we need, he says, I will supply. Second Corinthians 98, and God is able to make all things, sorry, to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Glory to God. Now Paul liked using superlatives. He did, you know, when you read his writings. In Ephesians 3.20, it's almost as if he's running out of what to say about this. It's that good. <laughs> Here's what he says. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly. That's good, isn't it? 
exceedingly. Is that enough? No, he says exceedingly abundantly. Is he happy enough with that? No, he isn't. Exceedingly abundantly above all. Now, hold a minute, Paul. You're not going to stop here at a minute. No, he's not going to stop. He says, above all that we could even ask. <laughs> Is he happy with that? No, he's not. Or even think. Using your best imagination is beyond that. That's what he's saying. Now, to him who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or even think. That's provision for living. Everything we ever need in life, he is the support. He's the source. Now, he uses different channels to bring that through. Sometimes it's your job. Sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's that. But he is the source. And if that cuts off, he's the source. And then there's a peace, a peace for living. People are desperately trying to find peace in this life. Trying to find peace in their hearts and peace in their mind. Now, peace is not necessarily the absence of conflict. Because in the Christian life, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have conflict in the world anyway, but in the Christian life, you're going to have conflict. Because there's a spiritual battle going on 24-7. And so from time to time, you're going to face that challenge. There's a war going on. We have a real enemy, a malevolent foe, who wants to steal and to kill and destroy, the Bible says. But the peace that God talks about is not necessarily the absence of conflict. We can have peace in spite of the conflict and in the midst of the conflict. Now, I keep saying, because it's true, that whenever bad things happen or bad news happens or you get that phone call or that shock, you're immediately taken back. Your human nature reacts to that. And that's fine. But after a while, you begin to realize, I've got within me what will overcome this that's come against me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. And no matter what this world throws at you, the greater one is inside you to be able to overcome this. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. My peace, he says, my peace. And wasn't there a quality of peace about Jesus? In spite of what was going on around him and the attacks against him, and yet he seemed to have that imperturbability. There's a big word like furniture, isn't it? that calmness, that peace. And he says, I want to give that to you. And boy, we need that, don't we? Because when you get that phone call or you open that letter or whatever the case may be, then your peace goes out the window. But you want to quickly get that back. Say, Lord, you're my peace. You're the one that promised me your peace. So I receive your peace in my heart. 
tribulation in this life is the lot of every man. Acts 14, 22, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Huh. So sometimes you're tribulating, <laughs> and it's not nice and it's not easy. But Paul says, we go through it, and we come out the other side, and God brings us through it. Jesus said, six, John 16, 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. <clears throat> That's a great promise, isn't it? Yeah, you're going to have tribulation. Stuff's going to happen. Paul said it, Jesus said it, so we get used to it. It's going to happen. It's unavoidable. But... Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Whatever comes against you, I've already overcome it. I've already overcome it, so I'm going to give you my peace for you to overcome it. I'm going to give you my strength for you to overcome it. I'm going to give you my victory for you to overcome it. The Apostle Paul, I, I don't think we're here yet. <laughs> Romans 5 and 3, he says, We glory in tribulation. <laughs> are you there yet? <laughs> Do you glory in it? When you're tribulating, are you enjoying it? <laughs> Don't think so. Paul says, We glory in it. In Romans 12 and 12, he says, Be patient in tribulation. But Lord, I want to get rid of this right now. I want this to stop right now. Be patient in tribulation, Paul says. And he knew he was talking about it. He had plenty of tribulation, hadn't he? <laughs> and then 2 Corinthians 7, 4, he says, We are joyful in tribulation. <laughs> are you there yet? No, I don't think so. I'm not there yet for sure. I can't think of one time I have been joyful in tribulation. Isn't that a shame? But the fact that it's there, the fact that it says it in the Bible means that it's possible. The potential for it is there. We're not there yet, but it's potentially there. We're almost finished. In Romans chapter 8, and verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what you are going through, Paul said, remember, Jesus loves you and nothing will separate you from his love. And you see, if we think that, and meditate on that and believe that, then it helps that peace to come in our hearts. Because the devil wants you to think in your tribulation that God's forgotten about you, that God doesn't care about you, or he's angry with you, he doesn't love you anymore. 
But Paul said, and all these things were more than conquerors, and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard in me, saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Glory to God. So, believer tonight, there's a lot going for us, isn't there? And there's more for us than what's against us. Glory to God. And no matter what we face in this life, God is with us in the midst of it. We mightn't feel it, we mightn't see it, but believe it by faith, he is there working on our behalf bringing us through the dark times and the difficult seasons of life. He's there with us, but we need to recognize it and believe it by faith and say it and look at the Word of God and say, God, that's what you said. I'm going to believe that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are with us continually. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You're with us even unto the end, you promise. So, Lord, in this life, no matter what we face, we know that you have got our back. We know, Lord, that you're with us in the midst of it. And so we look to you today for strength. We look for your peace in our hearts. We look for the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to live this life successfully. And we thank you, Lord, over many, many years for us in this church. You have done that. You've given us your grace again and again. You've given us your power and your strength over and over again. And so we have the testimony of your faithfulness and goodness. And we thank you for it tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.